Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is episode 88 of this show. Right on. I think when we hit episode 88, you're supposed to see some serious shit. Hey, it's Osher Ginsberg. My guest today is Merrick Watts. You can find him on Twitter at M-E-R-R-I-C-K-W-A-T-T-S. I'll tell you more about him in a moment. Thank you so much for being here. Do subscribe to this show. You can do so in iTunes or on your favorite podcasting app, wherever some you listen to this show this is a good way to listen to this show and uh the one thing i would ask you to do this week is if it behooves you just please tell a friend tell someone hey you know what you might dig this show there was an episode that he did with some guy or some girl or some people that you might be into so that'd be awesome thanks so much for all the emails that came through this week you can always email me send osher email at gmail.com i try and write back to everybody so so thank you very much and um yeah, you can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and I don't think I have a MySpace anymore, but it's probably there somewhere. I want does anybody know do our old MySpace profiles just sit around and talk to each other and and play each other songs from the early 2000s on MP3 on a Winamp player? I don't know anymore. Anyway, uh thanks for being here. I had a pretty good week. I was on a couple of other podcasts this week which was fun and I got to uh talk to two very interesting people and also interact with a whole new bunch of people that hadn't um I hadn't uh, talked to before. So yeah, I spoke with Charlie Clawson on That's Orson, A-W-E-S-O-N. We ranted for about an hour and a half about Mad Max and it was pretty great. Super nerdy, but yeah, it was really great uh, being on Charlie's show. I love that guy. He's such a wonderful guy. And also I was invited to come on Mia Friedman's podcast. I was the first guy to ever be on, to ever be invited to come and be on Mia Friedman's podcast, Mama Mia Out Loud. And uh, yeah, we got pretty deep on that one too. Yeah. I, I don't know. I tend to get pretty deep these days. I don't know. The time for, the time for not talking authentically has passed. I think, I think it's just 
straight up, this is what's going on in my life. Cause honestly, life's too short not to tell you how I'm feeling. And, um, yeah, I'm grateful that I can have these conversations with you and that you're able to listen to them. I'm, I'm very, very grateful. So, uh, I would recommend listening to both cause they're both great shows and, uh, they're both kind of filthy. So, you know, I know you don't mind that today. I am recording this on my father's birthday, which is, you know, interesting because my dad was born on D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944. In fact, my dad, the story goes, my dad was the first refugee child from Eastern Europe to be born after the storming of the beaches at Normandy. And my grandmother would tell a story, my dad's mum would tell a story that she actually got a letter from Dwight Eisenhower, who I believe at the time was the commander of the Allied forces. And she wrote, he wrote her a letter saying, well, congratulations on the birth of your son. He will never know war like we've seen. He will live in a peace and prosper, peaceful and prosperous world. And in that honor, my grandmother originally called my father Dwight, which uh, he was none too happy about. And he changed it later um, to Michael. Um, but I always knew when mum was really pissed off at him because she would go, yes, you would say that, wouldn't you, Dwight? <laughs> yeah. Those were the days. But yeah, happy birthday, dad. 71. My dad still ticking, which is great. He actually went on his 60th birthday. Dad actually went to Normandy and uh, he spent his 60th birthday on the beaches in Normandy, which is, uh, you know, pretty good. Doesn't mind a pilgrimage, my dad. Not bad. Uh, so yeah, I have had a wonderful weekend. On Friday night, I was uh, grateful to be asked to come and MC the China Australia Millennial Project gala dinner, which was at the Sydney Town Hall, a beautiful building if ever there was one. I highly recommend a visit to it if you're ever in town. Uh, the China Australia Millennial Project was uh, 65 delegates from China, 65 delegates from Australia working together on, I think they formed 25 different teams. And within the course of just only a couple of weeks and then very intensely over the last week, they put together uh, some really incredible business ideas and business models and uh, pitched it to a team of experts. And then the dinner was the night where the, the final three teams pitched, the final finalists pitched, and uh, the winner got an all-expenses-paid trip to Beijing to pitch at a big uh, startup conference there. It was very exciting, very wonderful, and uh, because I do live a double life where when I'm not counting roses on reality television, I uh, work at a business school in Amsterdam with uh, social entrepreneurs from around the world. And that's where I met Lu Yan, who's one of the co-founders and the chief curator of the camp project. And um, I've known her for a while now. And she asked me to come and be a part of this. And it was really an honor to come and MC a, a gig that was just embryonic when I first heard about it. And what was super cool, the super cool thing, was I walked in and I, I had my MC notes and I was having the kind of pre-beforehand -bef brief with the stage manager. There's the lectern, there's the video screen, I'll be over here, signaling that, blah, blah, blah. you got to do this for a gig. And this lovely lady came up and said hello to me. And she said, thank you. I said, why is that? She says, look, my name's Julia. My name's Julia Steele. She works for a company called Stratty Camping. And she said, I listened to your podcast with Lu Yan, the woman and I just, I was speaking to her. So the two of us were there, Lu Yan and I, it's an old episode. Um, you can go back and listen to it. She and I were talking about this project and Julia came up and said, look, I listened to that podcast. And because I listened to that podcast, I entered this and I became selected. And now she was a finalist. And it's one of those wonderful full circle moments that I just, I just don't think you can ignore when things like that happen, when I was just really touched. I was really touched that something that I created out of thin air 
and just talk to people and put out on the internet has able to profoundly influence someone's actions and life in a positive way. That was just, I couldn't, I still quite trying to grasp it. It was really wonderful. So thanks to everybody that came and said hello that night. It was really lovely meeting everybody. And, uh, it was great to meet all the, all the folks who came over from China. Um, and I got to meet, I got to meet Bob Carr, who used to be the, uh, Australian foreign minister. And there was a little girl backstage who was going to give a speech and she was quite nervous. And Bob was very, very sweet to her. He leaned over and said, now, when I first started in politics, I used to get quite nervous, but you've just got to remember, you just got to breathe. Just breathe. You know why you're there. You know what you're going to say. So just breathe and, and they'll love you. You're such a sweet guy. You know, he should, you know, perhaps pursue a career in, in speaking in public. Anyway, it was a great night and I wore a nice borrowed suit. So that was lovely. Anyway, let me tell you about my guest today, who I am very honored and, and grateful for his time. And I'm very happy to bring this conversation to you. Merrick Watts, you can follow him on Twitter at Merrick, M-E-R-R-I-C-K, Watts, W-A-T-T-S. Merrick is a stand-up, he's a dad, he's an actor, he's a radio host, and he is one of the most enduring figures in Australian media. 16 years without a contract, without 16 years not without contract. Hasn't been without a contract for 16 years. That's no mean feat in this industry. And he's achieved that through hard work, through exceptionalism, and as you'll hear, great self-reflection. Now, Merrick, initially, he was a solo performer. He was a stand-up. And then for a long time, he was part of the enormously successful comedy duo, Merrick and Rosso with Tim Ross. However, despite their split up a few years ago, uh, Merrick remains a powerful figure on the broadcasting landscape. You may think you know who Merrick is because he talks about footy and he talks about cars and he talks about barbecues. However, you're going to be surprised. There is more depth and knowledge and gravity to this man than you could possibly imagine. And most of all, Merrick is a really good guy. I met him for this interview uh, downstairs at the radio station where he works. He bought me a nice, nice cup of coffee. We went up in the elevator. Now, to get to the studio we were going to record in, it's a weird building. You go up to the 15th floor, then walk in at the 15th floor reception, and there's an internal staircase that takes you down to the 13th floor. So you pass through not one, not two, uh, but three full floors of offices. Merrick said hello and called by name no less than 12 to 13 people in that walk. Now, it wasn't just people that work directly with him on his show, like his producer, his audio director, et cetera, or the bosses above him. It was salespeople. It was marketing people. It was online people. It was content. Hey, Barry, how's the kid? The kid play netball this weekend. That's awesome. Like an absolute personal vested interest in people that perhaps don't have anything to do with his day to day, but are definitely a part of the business. I've worked in this industry for a long time and there are few people who can do that or want to do that. And it says a lot about the character of who this man is that he did that. And I am very, very happy to bring you this conversation. So I come on a rainy Sydney morning where in the depths of the Southern Cross Osterio building on Goldman Street in the city of Sydney, I share a coffee and some deep conversation with the hardworking, the thoughtful, the kind, and let's face it, wise Merrick Watts. When I, well, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Um, but it's good to see you again, man. Thanks for my coffee. 
Oh, welcome. I like that. It's Kingswood coffee. I, I owned, I've owned two Kingswoods. Oh, good cars. Would you have, uh, you'd have had a H, you'd have had a H, not a G. You're very good. You'd have had a HQ. After I had the HZ. HZ. HZ yeah. was the, that was the one I bought off a dodgy biker in Adelaide for a thousand bucks cash. Jeez, it's probably worth a bit more than that now. With LPG. Oh, conversion. great. Run on gas. It was awesome. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, dodgy bike. I put a kill switch on it and everything. Oh, I see. There you go. Yeah. Probably killed a hooker and put her in the booters oh, for free. Sh- and I, um, before that, I had a white one that we bought for 300 bucks. No, Rego. What Queensland. type? H. Fuck, I don't know. HR. It was, back gate was rusty as they all are. Mm. But that was our band van. They're great cars. I, I'd still love to own a HG, but HGMNR would be the dream car for me. This is when I was talking about cars. Yeah, well, I was thinking about <laughs> so I'll tell you why. Don't I was bring up about cars or motorbikes. When I first, well, when I first met you, the first day I ever met you was we were at a a weird film competition in Newcastle. Shootout. Yeah, where well, you had to edit the cam- edit in camera. Shootout. I had never met you before. You had a bit of a mullet. It was pretty good. Design. Yeah, it was 2000. Mm, that'd be about right. Yeah, and you had this fuck off. Was it like a 71 Mac 1? Uh, yep, 1973 Mark 1. 73, I got to Still got it. Green? Still got it. Blue, powder blue. Like mega bogan, like mm. ultra bogan. And you powder had blue. The, you had the fucking drag race tires on the back. Mm. I've, I've Since then, I've uh, I've had it redone. I've stripped it back and resprayed it and uh, done a lot of, I spent too much money on it because I'm a bogan. Uh, and I, I had mags custom made for me in America. And then I put massive uh, fats on the back of it. And now it just, it looks just ridiculous. It's like a matchbox car. For adults, and I never drive it because I'm a bogan. So my kids think it's like the uh, Starship Enterprise, and they go and play in it in the garage. It just sits there because <laughs> I'm a bogan. But I can't get rid of it because I love it. I love the car. It was the last. It was the same year that I was born, 1973, and it was the first car that I bought after getting. It was my second car that I ever owned. And it was the uh, first car I bought after I got a job and I was working in the industry. That was my first. My my question was like, was that the first thing you bought when you got some? Yeah, proper- and I was, I was working at Triple J. So yeah. it wasn't like I was earning that much money. It was like a half a year's paycheck, I think. It was and it wasn't it wasn't expensive at the time. And then I just I just saw the car and I just went, I just need to be driving that car. That's the car I should be driving and I love it. So I've hung on to it ever since and you know, I've had lots of other cars in between it, but that's the one I've held on to. The baby seats fit in it? No. But that's good because I don't want the kids in it. But then again, I'll just said I'll let them play in it. When how old are they now, your kids? I've got five year old boy and a three year old girl. Right, so 13 years. He's going to be asking you for the keys for that. He's never touching that car. <laughs> He's never driving that car. As for daddy to drive to golf too on occasions. Well, I do look, I do remember on that day, the day I met you, uh, I was like, well, fuck, there's a bloke that calls it like he sees it. Has it always been that way? Uh, yeah, I've never been backwards and coming forwards. I think, you know, at that age, I would have been 26 or something yeah, well, like you're, that. You're, you're, like you're four months older than me. So about 27, I think it was. Mm. And, uh, I would have just been, I think I just started working for Nova. We were just, just begun working for Nova and we, at that stage, look, that age, I was, um, oh, nothing but confidence. I was always a very confident person, but in those days there was nothing tempering me. There was nothing, you know, kind of grounding me. I just, I said what I thought because I thought everything I, I thought everything I said was, um, valid or worthy but really i was just a tool really just a confident i never i never for a second at that age never thought for a second that i wouldn't make it and anything i applied myself to never occurred to me that i wouldn't be able to persevere make it my way do what i wanted to do never not once was it always that way um as a kid 
as a young as a young kid, I was in a lot of trouble as a as a young boy, and uh, as rambunctious, and also to you know, what school trouble or cop trouble? Both, oh. lots of, both of them. Um, and you know, there was I think there was a general consensus from uh, educators and and authorities that uh, I was going to become a bit of a failure that, you know, I had lots of people say to me, you'll end up as a drug addict. Yeah. You're going to end up in jail, um, which I nearly did a couple of times. Um, nothing bad. No, uh, just say uh, victimless crimes. And um, anyway, so I think there was a general, a general thought that, that I would burn out. And certainly I had some educators actually say that to me, which is really pretty irresponsible, but you know, it was a different time. Um, but never in my mind, never in my mind, no matter how, you know, no matter what sort of crowd I was throwing, throwing around with, no matter what I was doing, no matter how much trouble I was in, never thought for a second that I wouldn't make it never. So as a teenager, <clears throat> when I was into, uh, you know, a pretty, a pretty wayward crowd and I was in a lot of trouble, uh, I saw some of my mates and I knew that they would crash and burn, but I always thought that I would pull the rip cord and parachute safely before it would happen to me. And it did. But unfortunately, a lot of my friends, a lot of people I knew growing up in my youth, hit the ground very hard, um, and that's just uh, that's just the way it is. You know, that's a part of society. Is that you know, some people just burn, and that was the way. But I loved, I loved the bad crowd. They don't really tell you that, like how dangerous it is to be a young man. Oh, I don't know. Look, it's the amount of times I should be dead is, is frightening. It's incredible. Me too. Like stupid things I did yeah. in cars out the back of Belbarry yeah, yeah. in Brisbane. Yep. Like should be dead. Yeah. Things that you've tried, things you've experimented with, things that you've pushed to. It's it's just it's incredible that things where just before you did them, you said, Hey, watch this. Always. Isn't it? I always say that. I go, you know, the greatest injuries are always preceded by the words, Hey, watch this or check this out. You know, just dumb shit, but I liked, I, I was a good kid. I always believed that I'm, I've been a good person. And I've had a good heart because I had good parents and I had a good upbringing and, um, you know, I was quite fortunate, but I, I think that, uh, I just, I was naturally drawn to trouble. I can hear something coming through. Oh, there's some Got people cans, talking yeah. on some, some cans somewhere. Um, so did you, what did your parents do when all this malarkey was going on? Were they getting, were they getting called in from, uh, were they getting called in from the, the parent teacher interviews and that kind of thing? Sorry, I'm just going to try and. Be the headphone volume. We're in the uh, we're in the Triple M studio, by the way. We're Sorry, on, on, no, it's fine. Oh, you reckon that somebody in radio would know how to turn this? No, on? it's what I love, man. There's two people. There's, there's kind of people who you who. Know. There's kind of people who panel and kind of people who never touch the panel. Ah! Oh, <laughs> oh, chef. It's kind of, there's, the, there's the people that know how to operate Mate. the panel and people that never, ever touch the panel. There's an old thing, and I tell this to young people, I said, never learn anything that you don't want to be able to do. So don't do anything that you may be called upon to use later in your career. So if I knew how to panel, people would ask me to panel. For, for people who aren't in radio, that's pushing all the buttons, making the songs fire, yeah. back-timing news. So don't learn anything you don't want to do. I mean, seriously, it's like learning accountancy. I don't want to learn accountancy. If I do that, I might end up being an accountant. God, no. No. So sorry. So your parents, mate. Yeah. When all this was going down, what were, what were your parents pulling you? Aside? <clears throat> uh, look, I was able to disguise a lot of from, from my parents, but my mum was an educator and she was uh, a specialised teacher who um, worked in specialised education in the prison system and drug rehabilitation centres. Um, 
She, she had a bit of a future. Bit she, of a... she had a she had a handle that I was up to no good. But that my parents never really knew how much trouble I was in. I, I went to court a couple of times, and my parents didn't even know. You know, I was in front of the magistrate twice before I think the third time my parents knew. So, um, and that was unavoidable. I think I don't know. I think two at two out of three times I, I would have gone to court without them knowing. So. I was able to kind of, you know, hide it in disguise because I was actually quite shamed by it when I was in trouble. Um, I was shamed by it because, it, you know, although you get the kind of the kudos from your, your, your half-wit mates, um, there was a shame in my family because I always thought my parents looked at me and thought that I could do better. Also, too, my mum thought I was going to become a cop, which I actually, you know, now I go, eh, being a cop wouldn't be the worst thing at all. It would be a good job. Um, <clears throat> but I didn't ever think I was going to become a cop. I didn't. I didn't think that was going to happen. You're an only child, or there's other no, kids. I've got an older brother. Yeah, and he's a very clever guy, very intelligent, and uh, a very. He's a very gifted guy. He's a, um, a designer, graphic designer, and works on computers. And he's uh, he went to university and studied and was good with maths, whereas I was terrible with mathematics. Um, I did a write at English because you know I could get my way through English because my mum was a teacher and. Uh, I had an interest in the English language, but, um, other than that, I was really just a bit of a, a cock up. Now you've got, now you've got kids. Mm. I was talking about this with Jimmy the other day. Now you've got kids. How do you look at the education system mm. versus That's a good what, what it was when you were a kid? That's a good question because my family's come full, full circle. My father went to an exclusive private, uh, school in Melbourne. He went to Haleybury boys and he could have gone to Xavier because my grandfather went to Xavier. So you know, you know, it's like they've got those weird uh, reciprocity or whatever it is. I don't know how the, the 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 guidelines work, but because my family had gone to these schools, there was a placement for my brother and I as an option. My mum was a public school educator, and uh, she, for some reason, we never, I never really knew why, um, but my parents, and particularly my mum, objected to us going to. Um, Halebury, and I think it was because it was quite far away from where we lived in Melbourne. And my mum didn't want us to be a boarder. She didn't want us to go into the boarding system, which my father had done. My father was a boarder uh, during the war because his father was a, in the Air Force. So um, my mum shied away from that. So we didn't we didn't uh, go through the, the private school education. And we had a very different kind of upbringing as a result. So we went to the local public school, which was, yeah, you know, public school, Eltham High. and um, my uh, father had this belief that if he wasn't spending money on that form of education, that he would spend it another way. My old man was an advertising executive and he worked for some of the larger uh, advertising companies in Melbourne. And then he had his own uh, advertising business and uh, his own agency. And so he did all right. The old man did all right. And he used to take my brother and I and my mother, obviously, but he would take my brother and I out of school between four and eight weeks every year on what were called family holidays, but they were not, they were educationals. So we would go to Europe and we would go to America or Asia, lots of time all around the world, Africa, you know, Northern Africa, everywhere. And my dad would make us, uh, follow an educational program as it were almost like we'd have fun, you know, we go to places like Disneyland, but it would also, you know, be walking around the Louvre. Um, we would go to the pyramids, you know, we would go, we went to Greece twice, um, to go and see, you know, ancient artifacts, you know, there was, uh, there was a real sense that dad was educating us for the world. 
And one of the big things that he kind of focused on was he didn't want us to grow up to be racist because he could see the, the changing nature of Australia. We grew up in Eltham, which is in Melbourne, which its largest ethnic minority was Dutch. Um, <clears throat> so that was, uh, and dad could kind of see it was changing and dad abhorred, um, racism. He didn't, he didn't like it. And, uh, so he didn't want us to fall into the trap of it. As a result, most of my friends, uh, when I was growing up, you know, uh, people would say ethnic now, but when we'd say from Melbourne, you'd say all my mates were wogs and people say, are you a wog? And I go, no, I'm not a wog. And they go, you look like a wog. And this is of course, you know, European saying to me. And as I always said, you know, wog in Melbourne is not actually, it's not a derogatory term. Yeah. It's, it's not, it's not, um, pejorative. It's, uh, it's just, it's just a way of, or well, certainly in those days, it was just a way of saying whether or not you were European because more than a third of the city's population were European. Um, and so all my mates were Calabrian, Greek, Sicilian, um, Lebanese. So anyway, my dad didn't want us to grow up to be racist. So he would take us on these educationals and sometimes they'd be really massively eye-opening. So when I was a young bloke, my dad took us to the Philippines and he paid a guy, a cab driver, to take my brother and I without my mother, took us to the shanty towns in Manila and uh, where, you know, people live in cardboard boxes, like extreme poverty. And he paid a guy to walk us through the shanty town. And so my brother and I witnessed, you know, I was only probably nine or something like that, 10. And we witnessed um, extreme poverty. So I remember seeing a four-year-old kid smoking. And I, I just went, holy shit, I've never seen, <clears throat> excuse me, I've never seen anything like this before in my life. And my dad said, this is poverty. This is what real poverty is. The poverty you think you see. So when you complain about, not having something, look at that. And we just went, wow. So he would, uh, he took us to, uh, illegal cockfights overseas to show the desperation of people. Um, he took us to, um, kickboxing in Thailand where, uh, my brother and I, my brother and I were both into martial arts, but we watch young kids at the age of 13, 14 fighting for their lives. And so that was dad's idea of educating us outside of the education system. My mum, as I said, was part of the education system, but a little peripheral. She wasn't, um, so far down the line. So to, to answer your question, to come full circle, I now have my children in what I think is a, a compromise. My children go to a private school, uh, which is an international grammar school because my wife speaks several languages, She's you know, half Kiwi, half Polish. And she can speak uh, a handful of languages. So my son and my daughter both attend IGS and have done from a very early age where the education platform is about languages and it's about uh, tolerance and understanding of the global education system. So my son already learns Japanese. My daughter is starting to learn Japanese now as well. So by the time they've finished school, my kids should speak probably four languages. That's and awesome. that's important to me. So all this stuff leads me to like, <clears throat> Guys like Del Close and stuff like that will always talk about, you know, going from the top of your intelligence. So when you started stand-up or something, you're coming to it not just armed with the suburban Melbourne experience or the Australian experience. You're coming to it through your voice, which you masquerade very well as a bogan. Oh, yeah. But <laughs> you, oh, I know that. you come fully loaded with this worldview. Yeah, because it, was, there's a dichotomy in my life that is, you know, um, I don't think people see all the time is it, I think people see me as a one-sided coin at times and that's all right. That it just really doesn't bother me. But my mother came from a very poor family in Broken Hill, a mining family. Mining in Broken Hill? Mining. Yeah. Strange. Who would have thought? 
And my grandfather and my family were, you know, part of that, that Broken Hill mining culture. And um, so my, my mother's family are the most incredible Australians. You know, they're selfless. Um, uh, many of them are uh, just the, so kindly, so generous, incredible. People who have very little sometimes are the people who give the most. And that's what I learned from my mother's family. Just they would give you the shirt off their back. And my mother's family, as I said, uh, taught me those kind of lessons that, you know, I, I grew up um, being exposed to people who lived below the poverty line. My grandfather lived below the poverty line. He was below the poverty line. When he died in 2002, his total life's worth was less than $20,000. And he worked all his life and he was a non-drinker. So he wasn't spending it on booze, uh, only non-drinker and Broken Hill. Um, so that kind of, that gives, that gives me a very strong grounding in Australia and the things I love about Australia. My father was, you know, a private school educated, uh, guy, uh, a, a great raconteur, uh, a bit of a dandy, a bit of a, um, uh, show off, um, egocentric, um, and very different to my mother's family. Just very different. He came from, <clears throat> excuse me, my grandfather was uh, served in both wars and three services. So from a very young age, he was uh, 14. My grandfather was 14 when he was in the Navy. In those days, they used to put 14-year-old boys in the Navy. Um, and then he was in the Army in the First World War, uh, Navy and then the Army. And then in the Second World War, he was asked to come back and he joined the Air Force at 39 or 40 something. Um, so he spent a lot of that time kind of, you know, serving Australia, which has, you know, also influenced me enormously in my respect for the servicemen. But the, his family came from an incredibly wealthy family, real money, like massive money down at Mount Eliza and, um, uh, where else? Glenn Huntley, they had vast properties, like massive. Um, and it was incredible wealth, which they lost at the stock market crash the turn of the last century, they lost most of it then. So there was always this kind of gentrified English natured, uh, side of my father's family. And, and that kind of, you know, I suppose filtered through my dad, although much, much less, we didn't have the money, but there was still the, that attitude of uh, gentrification. And on my mother's side, there was uh, a sense of, you know, poverty making do, doing the best you can with as little as possible. <clears throat> so that's the dichotomy of my life is, you know, I like this kind of the, the refinements of those things that would come from my father's side, the use of language, the, um, uh, the education, um, and the, the mindset, but also too, I have a, a you know, a, a truly deeply passionate respect for hardworking Australians. So that's what people don't know about me. So people see a lot more of the Bogan side, probably because that's a lot more relatable. So I probably show a lot more on that, but then when people interview me or if people get to know me, they know that I'm far more complex and far, my interests, um, extend a lot more beyond cars and motorbikes. Yes, I'll have to talk about cars and motorbikes, but I'm equally comfortable talking about literature. So, which, you know, ironically I'm doing, I'm going, you know, I said to somebody next week, I'm going on Jennifer Burns uh, show for the book club where I sit around and talk about books that I've read and, you know, invited to talk mainly. It's actually about, um, specifically about, uh, Australian war history and which I, you know, I'm an avid reader of. And I said to, to my wife, I said, I think the ABC audience will be surprised that I can even read, <laughs> let alone the fact that I have an interest in it. So that's, that is, you know, that's a different part of me. I think people would understand 
generally that I would have an interest in something like war, but I think they'd be surprised at how voracious I read these books. Was the, okay, so I'm going to ask the psychologist question. <clears throat> was all the stuff with the cops and authority and stuff like that, was that at all a rebellion against the, I don't think so. The dad stuff? I don't think so. <clears throat> uh, because that as well, that, that rebellion, though tempered, certainly hasn't hurt your career much. You're the one that, that I mean, that's you saying what you think, that's you doing what you want, and people yeah. kind of come to that. I think I'm just cheeky. I just think I'm naughty. I, I, you know, I think that's what it is. I don't think I liked hanging around with bad kids because bad kids did fun things. That was as simple as me. I didn't want to hurt people. I didn't. I didn't like that. I just loved the danger. I loved the trouble. I loved being, you know, eluding trouble. It felt good and it was addictive. You know, the adrenaline of it. Um, and you know, I liked bad kids. They were fun and they were funny. But I don't think that uh, it wasn't a. a re- a rebellious attitude towards my family life. My family were very, uh, my parents were very relaxed. Uh, we had a good home life. As I said, you know, we were very well looked after and there was nothing that my home life would uh, provoke an attitude of rebellion. I think the, I, I always say this to comedians is that, you know, I say about comedians, it's good to know your pain. It's good to know the reason why you are what you are. Comedians don't just happen because they've had stable lives. We all know that, you know, there's not a lot of, uh, comedians going around who have had a perfect childhood. If you had a perfect childhood, you're not doing comedy. You're You're happy. (laughs) There's a reason for it. So, you know, and that's, I think there's a reason why there's, you know, happy clown, happy clowns and sad clowns. And, you know, sad clowns, I, I really struggle to spend time with. They really, I love happy clowns and, I like hanging out with happy clowns. Sad clowns are not my ilk. I, I see them almost, you know, as a subgenre of, of comedian. But I think, you know, knowing your pain and knowing the reason why you do what you do is important. And, you know, sometimes you might have to deal with it. And other times it's just, you don't have to deal with it. You just have to recognize it. And I say that because when my grand, uh, sorry, when my father, my father was dying of cancer in 2007. Now, um, when I was a kid, my father and I had, no relationship as a boy. I was in trouble. My dad didn't really, we didn't have a friendship. We didn't have a mateship. You know, part of that can be argued away with the fact that he was in boarding school and he was a, you know, he was a product of that generation of seen, but not heard. And, um, my old man was not, uh, tactile or or affectionate, like, you know, modern fathers are. My old man was that old school kind of dad. And he was a drinker and he was not like a, you know, a nasty drinker. He was just a, you know, he liked to drink and that was his thing. He didn't, um, he wasn't the sort of dad who'd take me down the park and have a kick the footy. Never. Just wasn't, wasn't his thing. So I had no relationship with my father. And then that slowly grew into, as I was starting to get older and I got into more trouble, that started to grow into a really strained relationship. And I genuinely really disliked my father. Uh, when he used to come home from work, I would cringe and I used to have, you know, a visceral reaction to seeing my father's car arrive at home because he was stressed. He didn't like work and he would come home and be in a foul mood. And usually I'd done something stupid. So, you know, I've, I deserved the negative attention. So I had no relationship with my father to the point where I, I literally, I, I, I can't say hate, but it was pretty close to it. I, I just... I couldn't stand to be around him and I don't think my dad liked to be around me. And he favoured my brother, there's no doubt. Because my brother's a good kid. He's a great guy. So 
then when I was about 16, uh, slowly I started to take an interest in things that my dad was interested in. We slowly started to um, form a relationship. And I remember one time very, very clearly, kind of possibly a little mini epoch, we, dad had tickets to go and see a comedian called Mort Saul. You know mm. Mort Saul? Mort Saul, he's a world famous, yeah. like very, very, very like landmark mm. guy. And I was a 16-year-old kid going to see like a 56-year-old New York Jewish comedian. So your first stand-up show? Yeah. And my dad took me because he, I don't know, he didn't have anyone else to take. And I went. And although I didn't understand a lot of it, I loved it. I thought it was really funny. And my dad was like, oh, huh, that's cool. He was just thrilled that I liked it. And so then I started to take an interest more in, I loved comedy at that age. I loved, I always loved it. You know, I loved things like The Young Ones and I loved uh, the Late Show, and I was a big fan of comedy. And my father and I slowly started to develop a, a, a relationship. Then, when I was about eighteen, I was old enough to drink. We could, I could have a couple of beers with my dad, and we started to talk more about, you know, um, comedy and things that were funny. And and I just kind of, I don't know, it just we started to get along. Then, when I was twenty, I went to my dad and I said, "Dad, um, I'm going to start doing stand-up comedy." Now, normally, like, you know, if you tell your parents that you're going to go and become a stand-up comedian, and particularly with a, you know, a kind of nefarious past that I had, they would just go, can't you just go and work at Woolworths? You know, can't you just get a job and just not, <laughs> you know, not be a bigger loser than you already are? And my old man was wrapped. He was wrapped. He couldn't have been happier. I thought it was the best job I could ever take in my life. So as soon as I became a comedian, my old man and I just became best mates. And that was the way it was until the day he died. And I think because my dad, I didn't kind of realize, you know, this is what I say about knowing your pain is that I didn't really realize until my dad had died and I was going through grief therapy with a psychologist and, you know, I hadn't spoken to a psychologist before in my life because I didn't feel like I had the need. I probably should have when I was young and being a dickhead, but, um, I spoke to a psychologist and it sort of, you know, through the therapy sessions. Uh, it sort of came to the fore that, you know, number one, I, the penny dropped that my old man was a massive, massive comedy fan. He loved comedy. Like I knew he liked it, but I just thought dad liked comedy like everyone liked comedy. My old man was a massive comedy fan. And I look at all the books that, you know, he left that they're all, you know, uh, things from, you know, Bernard Shaw and uh, Perelman and, and uh, all these great writers. He was a huge fan of the written word and, and you know, comic phrasing. Uh, Groucho Marx, you know, and so as I would read books like, you know, particularly things like Groucho Letters, dad and I would share this commonality and we became great friends, as I said. So when dad died, going through, uh, you know, therapy sessions, you know, it was kind of, it came out that the reason why I was doing comedy, I know this, you know, to answer your questions in a very elongated sense, the reason why I was doing comedy is because I was trying to get my dad's attention. And the thing that got dad's attention was comedy. So, you know, I was 34 or something like that when, and I just went, holy shit. It never, it never occurred to me. And she just sat there and she said, the reason why you do what you do is because you're an attention seeker. And I look back at the school and all the things I did at school, all the dumb shit I did was for attention. It wasn't to hurt people. It wasn't to, um, and I was never obsessed with fame. I was obsessed and still am with attention. I like attention, but it was because I didn't get any from my father in the first half of my life. And then I got so much in the second half of my life. And 
You know, like I say, you got to know your pain. You got to know the reason why you do these things. Why do you want it? Why do you want to get on, on stage in front of people and make them laugh? What drives you to do something that, you know, is the greatest fear in society is public speaking, and you like it? What you've got to be unhinged. There's got to be a reason why you do it. And I think the more comfortable you are with the knowledge of why you do what you do. It's certainly given me a lot of comfort. There's no doubt. Not that I was ever tortured by it. I knew I was an attention seeker, but I just didn't know why. Now I do. <laughs> I think it's important, even if you're not a stand-up comic, I think it's important to know why you do what you do. Yeah, absolutely. Or, or why you don't do what you do. Like mm. if you've always wanted to be a, I don't know, if you've always wanted to, like my youngest, my younger brother always wanted to work in the motor, automotive industry. Why? He worked in it because he loved cars. He loved rebuilding cars, mm. brewing his own beer, but he worked in education. He's like, I don't want to do this. Did he leave? He started himself an auto blog. Yeah, great. Started meeting other journalists, <clears throat> went down to Melbourne, met a few, had a cup of coffee because that's where the industry is. And, you know, started getting a relationship with these guys, still worked in education. And then one of the people from the Ford Motor Company said um, to one of these journalists, I'm looking for a new marketing guy. They're like, you know, I've been talking to this marketing guy from the Queensland education system. He's actually pretty good. And then... He, him and his boyfriend moved down to Melbourne and he started working for the Ford Motor Company. He's just mm. moved to Shanghai. He's, wow. he's been working. He's living the dream. So he, he, but he changed his, the course of his career because he had to figure out. <clears throat> and I, I, you know, it doesn't matter if, you know, on, on this show, I've got a job where I read out loud and talk for a living, which is crazy. But it's something that I can't, I don't know how to do anything else. This is all I know how to do. Did you want to do this though? What did you want to do? In many ways, it's the same, it's the same thing that you're talking about. I never felt peace unless everyone else was quiet and listening to me. <laughs> Doesn't it make you feel shallow when you actually say it out loud? Oh, it's the truth. And people will ask me, aren't you terrified of live television? I'm like, look, I have a control issue. When am I more in control than when there's, there's like in the biggest, like the big TV, you don't get these <clears> audiences <throat> anymore, no matter who you are. But like when there's two and a something million people mm. quiet in their living rooms watching and I'm on live television, peace absolute serenity yep. absolute serenity yeah it's when i'm sitting around in my house by myself and i'm surrounded by unknowns yeah it's fucking horrific it's funny isn't it? because it's it's you know one man's torture is another man's pleasure mm. no. hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like I was saying about stand-up, it's the same. Like, you know, television... Television frightens me more than stand-up. Stand-up's like something you can fix. It's not permanent and it's, it's gone. You know, it's like, but, you know, television, live television, maybe not so much, but I don't know. It's something about 
I'd be far more uncomfortable doing what you do on television than I would be. I'd fuck it up for sure. I'd be shit ass at it. Oh, look, I've tried different pieces and I've never been good at it. But the, um, you know, I like I like being the fool on television, and then I'm comfortable. If I'm being, you know, if I'm having a good time, yeah. But if I actually try to do the job of television, no, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't feel comfortable. It makes me feel a bit crook. I, I mean, <clears throat> I much. My father is still is still alive, though. I had a similar realization to you, um, and it was when I when I got sober, when I started to figure out. I had to figure out why why am I drinking? Hmm. It was oh, it's all that. Well, mm. That's when I had to unpack it all. And it wasn't until I was 39 yeah. that I was like, oh, shit. I do what I do because I'm terrified of the unknown. And yeah. if I'm broadcasting, if I'm talking, no one else is talking, I feel, I feel peace. <laughs> yeah. I just managed to get paid well for my coping yeah. mechanism. <laughs> yeah, that's what it is. But don't you reckon so many entertainers, comedians or oh, other? Yeah. That's what it's about. Totally. Absolutely. Because the silence can be deafening, you know, for some people. You know, like I, I, I know lots of people who have to try to shut off their brain, you know, and they, they use drugs, they use alcohol. Um, you know, there's been times when I was young, I, you know, I was really into, into grog um, and I stopped, I was using, you know, drugs when I was younger and then I kind of, they really disagreed with me and so I stopped using them. And then um, to compensate, to kind of, calm the mind I was drinking and before I knew it you know I was drinking really excessively at a very young age like 18 or 19 19 it's not it's not great but I've had a couple of times I've had two times in my life where I've had to put myself in check with alcohol because my old man was an alcoholic and um it's hereditary man you gotta watch out for that yeah but you know like I, I, I I'm aware of it so right, being important. aware of it's it, it's important. It's super important. Yeah. Like, you know, I make sure that I don't drink every day. And if I do drink, I, I don't drink the way I used to. I still like drinking though, because I'm very good at it. I've got a great constitution like my father. <laughs> Piss fit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as we say in this country. Um, when you walked on stage as a stand-up for the first time, did you walk on stage with that confident swagger? Like, this is going to work out? No, <clears> no, this is just going to be fine? No, I was pretty nervous the first time I did it. Um, uh, you know, it was in an established room called the Star and Garter in South Melbourne. And this is, you know, a lot of big name comics were in there and you only had five minutes and that was it. And that five minutes, your first five minutes would pretty much determine whether or not you'd even get a second gig. There was other venues, but, um, it was a bit of a big deal. And even then I knew it. And, um, I, I don't know. I just, I remember going out and I'd stack the house with a whole heap of my friends and family. So, that, you know, I could try and get some empathy or sympathy. And, uh, from the audience and it actually went okay. It wasn't a great gig, but it didn't bomb. I think if it had really bombed, I would, I wouldn't have stopped me, but it would have probably uh, retarded that, um, uh, process. You know, it would have slowed it off. Um, and it would have taken me months before I would have gone back. But the first one, once I did it, I wasn't addicted to it either. I just sort of went, okay, I've done that first one. Now I need to do more, just repeat and do more material. But it wasn't a bad gig. It was all right. People laughed but who weren't my friends and family. It's like, oh, okay, maybe this is not as hard as it was. But it's, you know, it's with stand-up. I, my brother was the one, and I have to credit him. My brother Beachley was the guy who told me to become a comedian because I didn't really think about becoming a comedian. I always wanted to be on television. I wanted to be Steve Weiser. I wanted to be a comedian. Um, 
I wanted to be on television and, and be like a Tonight Show host because I, I thought that was what I wanted to do or be an actor or, you know, do something in comedy on television. Never thought about radio. And then um, I was at a barbecue once. I, I was late. I had to work and I was late to a barbecue when I was about 19, um, almost tw- or maybe 20. I started when I was 20 anyway. And I was uh, I was watching lots of stand-up and I'd been sort of talking about, you know, wouldn't it be good to do some stand-up or something like that. I, I don't know. I had a vague interest in it. And I got to this party and my brother was there. And, um, as I arrived, I kind of, the party was just seemed like a bit kind of flat. And then all of a sudden I just grabbed a beer and he goes, Oh, g'day, man, how are you going? And then all of a sudden I was kind of, you know, talking to people and making jokes and mucking around and stuff like that. And then my brother pulled me aside that night and he said, you have to go and do stand up now. And I said, why? And he said, I said, no, I'm not, I don't, I don't think it's for me necessarily. I said, I want to do other stuff. And he said, before you arrived, everyone was just kind of doing their own thing. He said, when you arrived and you get a beer, he said, everyone comes to you because they want to hear you tell stories. He said, all you do is talk about how you got there. He said, mate, that's stand-up. That's what stand-up is. He said, people want to be around you because you tell funny stories. So he said, why don't you stop being a dickhead and go and do that on stage? And I went, all right. I said, that's it. If that's what I have to do. He goes, that's it. He said, because everyone comes. He said, "When when you arrive at a party, people want to come and be around you because you tell funny jokes. I went, oh, okay. And there was just stories, just, you know, just being a dickhead. And so that's why I went into stand-up. I was never real, and still to this day, like I like stand-up, but it's never been my primary motivator. Uh, it's not It's not the, the thing that uh, drives me to be a comedian. I like stand-up. I like doing it. I like being a stand-up comedian because I like the, you know, the kudos of it. Um, because I think, you know, in a lot of ways it separates certain people. Um, you can always do it. Come yeah. radio, go radio. You can always do stand up. It's lots of people, you know. It's it's funny. It's probably not as common now, but it certainly was when I was young. It's like it's like the haves and the haves not have nots. If you if you're a stand up comedian and you did television, radio, whatever else, it doesn't matter. You're still stand up comedian. Whereas if you do if if you did radio or television and you didn't do comedy, you didn't do stand up comedy. You weren't in that group. You yeah. couldn't really call yourself a comedian in the same way. So it's so weird now because media is, you know, so fractured and different now anyway. But, you know, still to this day, there's, you know, that old group of, of um, you know, the collegiates, I suppose, of, of my generation that we all kind of know. We all know that we're all part of the same thing. And I think it's just because it's tough. It's hard. You have to earn your stripes. It is not an easy path. It's not easy for anyone starting. No one just falls into it. It's tough. It's merciless. And you get a lot of blood noses, but you pay your dues. It's like an apprenticeship. It's like doing your apprenticeship. So nothing comes easy. And I think that's one of the great things about stand-up is it prepares people for media because it's a slow um, path to success and a slow path for um, fame. So you kind of acclimatize yourself as you go up. If you went straight to the top of Mount Everest, you, your lungs would burst. You'd be fucked. Whereas if you take it slowly as they do and acclimatize as they do. That's the same with show business. You know, I see a lot of people in, and you'd know this from reality television, you know, when people get fame really quickly, that's when it's a problem because they haven't mentally prepared themselves. Yeah. Nothing prepares you from doing your groceries one week as just a punter and then doing your groceries next yeah. week with everyone in the yeah. supermarket staring at you. It was like that time when I did hydro back in Adelaide and I thought everyone was staring at me, but it was actually happening. <laughs> 
And my someone was with me. It was the Broadway Coles, the old 24-hour one. It's like, everyone's looking at you. It's like, I know. It's fucking weird. Yeah. And it's not like it's a, a dark place. It can't be brighter place. It's weird. Mm. Uh, you and I have something in common in that we were both once part of a, in the public eye, inseparable showbiz relationship. Yep. And we've both extracted ourselves. Yep. And now. Have- Who do you reckon's done it better? Who wore it better? Oh, I think Who you, broke it better? You. You've never stopped working. I've been unemployed. I've had all kinds of shit going. But you've never stopped working. Um, but I think the the you know possibly you know the you know it's maybe I don't know you'd be able to test it, but possibly it's harder for me to separate from that because it was a full full blown duo that crossed different media as well. Yeah. Anyway, what was it like when when that relationship ended? Uh it was very sad. It was. Uh, did you see it coming? Was it like when a marriage breaks up? Yes. Yeah. 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 I did. I did see it, and you know, it's like one of those things. But it's it's you literally see yourself going in a different direction. And I always thought there were cliches and platitudes that people would irreconcilable you know, musical differences. Yeah, stuff like that. And I go, oh no, actually, the people can and do wish to do other things. You see, the thing is with Rosso and I is that and I always said this: Rosso and I are very different people. Very different individuals, as you would know. Um, we have very different interests. Like, could pe- barely be more opposite. But we have the same sense of humour. And that that's what uh, drove our partnership was the fact that we had the same sense of humour. We found the same things funny. So as a result, we could preempt each other. We could cue each other. We could feed each other. And because we both thought in a kind of same um, lateral pattern of, of thinking for comedy. But as people, very, very different. Different interests, different personalities. Um, and so I think what happened is, that, you know, we uh, had done so much stand-up together in so many different shows very successfully, you know. So we we really kind of reached the pinnacle of, of touring as far as we were concerned in live shows. We'd done uh, three television shows together. We had done, uh, we'd worked at two radio stations in two different shifts together. And I think we just had done everything. There was nothing left to do. There was nothing new. You know, do something new would have been to do like a play. And we even talked about doing a play, but we didn't really have any ideas. But I think that we, in such a short period of time, you know, now it looks like a short period of time, we'd just done everything. So it was sad, uh, but you know it's also it's inevitable. Partnerships always break up. Was it was it obvious when it when it was going to be over? Or like, was there a timing? Like, we'll we'll see out this contract, or we'll see out this shift, or we'll see out the end of this rating season, or was it did it have to end before that? Because um, you know how parents go, oh, we'll wait till the last one leaves school, and then we'll drop it on them. No, it was kind of we. I think we kind of. We'd made the decision before the end of the year, but we had a radio contract and we saw out our radio contract. Yeah. Um, but we'd, you know, we'd made the decision that there was that we're going to separate, and we weren't sure whether or not we would take some time out and uh, work together again, or how, you know, uh, manifest. But like I said, you know, what what do you do? If we'd done a like a film, a film would have been, yeah, that would have been if we were in America. We would have had a year off, maybe longer, had a year off, come back, 
and made a film. But in Australia, making a film, as you know, is just, it's, you have to be partially insane to make a film in this country or incredibly gifted. And I'm only the, the former. So the, the kind of um, drive or, or the motivation to do anything wasn't there. And so we didn't do anything. There was nothing to do. And so we kind of moved on. And also too, you know, I started as a solo stand-up comedian. I started with my own uh, ideas of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. And I kind of went, you know what, I want to be, I want to be different. I want to, I want to be a big boy now. And I want to do different things. Mm. You know, having said that, that was about f- almost six years ago, five, five and a bit years ago. And I'm only just starting to be, act like an adult now at 41. Jesus Christ. I felt, Such I, I don't know if this was the same for you. I mean, you said you started a solo. I had worked with Jim nonstop pretty much every day since mm. 2000, halfway through 2000. By the time he stopped doing Idol at the end of 2008, we had been in each other's pockets. Yeah. Six out of seven days. It's tough, isn't it? And suddenly I'm hosting TV by myself and I realized, oh, now I've got to bring all of it. Yeah. I, the half that I didn't have to watch, because I did five years of radio before I got to Channel V. So I was, yep. my, I was my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when you're as two people, you pull so much of yourself back to allow the other person's space to be what they are. Yeah. I would pull way more back because James is fucking funny and amazing. And I could never be as funny as him. He's fucking incredible. He's so smart. Yeah. But a, tr- a tree needs branches and it needs a trunk. Right. So then suddenly when there's no gym, I realize, oh God, I have spent eight years not working this muscle. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> I was yeah. in trouble, man. Yeah. I was in a lot of trouble. I bet. But you would have you would have been probably better placed because you know you had established yourself. See, in my mind, I, I see you as an established individual first, who then worked in a you know a duo situation and then went solo again. You know, for me, it's like you know an even partition of uh, solo work and duo work for you. But I didn't realise that that was such a hard separation for you. Yeah, it was really it was really difficult. Yeah, because- I wouldn't have thought that because it didn't it looked seamless from the outside. It didn't it didn't look like you were struggling. Didn't look like you were Mr. Beat. I'm glad. Well, we had, we had lots of script meetings. <laughs> yeah, but still, you know. <laughs> but I still, you know, and, but honestly, I really, I still miss him. You know, he's still around. He's still in my life. We still play cards every now and again. Look, it's great. There is something really great about working in a duo and being able to, to share things because the, the keep, as you know, saying, keeping the ball in the air. It's, if you've got two sets of hands, the ball stays aloft trying to do it all on your own you're running around the court and it's um it is harder and that's one of the things i've learned but also too you know there is there is a, a great um sense in being an individual mm. that i really you know i've really enjoyed particularly this year being a solo broadcaster is that you know being able to make the decisions based on your own intellect and on your own instincts is great it's very empowering very empowering but you've proven that intellect and you've proven those instincts over your career. Your Well, I lost my instincts, I reckon. I didn't lost them. I, I Sorry, I didn't lose them. I began to mistrust my own instincts and second guess myself. And that was the worst thing I, I've ever done in my career. If there's anything I could change, it would be probably that is, you know, there was a period there where I started listening to too many other people, with too many different opinions and stopped. Because like I said, you know, very early when we're chatting, I never ever second guessed myself. Until I started second guessing myself, 
And then that was really bad for me. And that was actually employed in my thinking by others, not by myself. Um, and I started to have that doubt and that, that affected the, the way I am. I mean, half of my performance is confidence. So, um, I think, you know, you've got to run on instincts, but as I get older now, now I know that my instincts are, you know, with age and with experience, you know, 15, 16 years or something in, in radio, there's not a lot of people I work with or know have got as much experience as me. So I kind of go, well, my instincts are probably right now. So I'm actually kind of having this, you know, renaissance of um, confidence in my own ability to judge and to have judgment in radio right. and in entertainment as well. Well, like you said, you've worked 15, 16 years. And like I already said, you've, in my eyes, you've never stopped working. Never. You've never, like. I, never been out of contract. Never been out of contract. That's incredible. Yet still, you've been in situations where things haven't gone well. Oh. <laughs> you've been in situations where oh, Jesus. the GM calls you up and goes, yeah, look, we're not bringing you back next year. How do you deal with those moments? You just deal them. You've got to, you've got to stay true to yourself. You've got to be strong. And it, I know that sounds cliche, but it is true. You have to be strong and you have to have confidence in yourself. And, you know, you shit yourself and you, you worry about what you're going to do. But you've also got to have faith that you've got something to offer. Um, but I think part of, the, you know, uh, the way I've been able to handle the ups and the downs is how I carry myself in those bad times. That's the secret to why I'm still here. Because somebody said to me the other day, who works for a rival network, a friend of mine said, and I've never, th- I never even considered this. It was really, it's still to this, still now after a week or two, you know, having it kicking around in my head, it makes me uncomfortable, but I can't quite figure it out. They said, people in the industry are very envious of you, Merrick. And I said, well, why? Because, because of, of, I don't know what is it because of money. What is it? She said, no, it's because everyone thinks that, you know, when you're going to, uh, when your career is over, you, you surprise people again, you come back. She said, they're envious of the fact because they know they wouldn't get the second chances that you've had. And I said, well, maybe if they didn't act like cockholes, <laughs> they might get second chances. Here's a tip. Don't be an asshole. I walked into the building with you this morning. I think I counted. You called 12 people by their name from the front door down to here. At least. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I know most people on both floors. But so many people, you've got to understand, so many people who do your job don't know. Don't make contact. Don't know who the salespeople are. Don't know who the people on the other floor are. Because here in Today FM, Triple M, and Mm. we're on the bottom floor, there's three stories. So there's you could have a career in Today FM and not know anyone on the second floor down here. Totally. Or down on the third floor, you wouldn't know what people look like. Totally. You walk through the the whole building and you were like, g'day, g'day, eye contact. Hey, good to see you. High-fiving yep. people the whole way down. Yeah. That is, I've met a lot of people that do a job in your position and then a lot of people don't even look. They know their producer, they know their GMs, they know the people above them, mm. but they don't bother to know the salespeople who come and go. Yeah, but those people are important. They're important to me. And uh, I think, you know, I'm important to them. And I think that's part of the, you know, that the reason why I have been able to rebound, the reason why I have been given second chances and, uh, you know, I stay afloat in the industry because you want to stay in it. It's not about winning wars. It's, a, you know, it's about being there constantly for the battle. Um, so you want to be, you want to be there. Well, it's actually probably the wrong In this industry, the people you beat in the war, you may be working with next year. That's right. And that's happened to me. <laughs> that's happened to me. I think the, the, most, the most important thing is to have a really strong respect within the industry. 
you know, uh, that people from all the different radio companies, and I do this, you know, they might, I might annoy them and I might, you know, be a thorn in their side at times, but you know, I have great relationships with the companies that I've worked for previously all the way to the CEO, um, and the board members. I know them by name and I, you know, I genuinely really like them. Um, and there's people that I know from companies that I've never worked for. And I still, you know, enjoy having conversations with them. I've got good relationships with them. And I think that's part of it. I don't think, you know, people see me as a headache and that's a part of it. Now you can be a massive headache and you'll get what you want and you can throw your toys around and, you know, act like a child and have tantrums and be, you know, awful to staff. But one day that will run out. Um, I think, I think being a, a good guy and, and being, part of a team of a broader team is the key to, to what I do. And that's the key to my longevity. And thus far has been, um, the fact that I am a team player, the fact that I do include people, the fact that I'm respectful of my management, I'm respectful of the people that I work for, uh, and with, and, uh, and then that I do my job, I work hard. So uh, that's, that's the reason why, but to hear that other people were envious of the fact that, you know, and almost jealous is almost like a, a spite that I felt that, you know, it's like fucking Merrick, he keeps getting employed because, you know, today for him didn't work out, but that was, that was always going to be a very dangerous prospect. I knew that, but it was about how I carried myself in that time because people did look to me as a senior member of staff. I knew that people would look to me and if they saw the cracks, if they saw bad behavior, if they saw tantrums or, you know, stupidity, then that would affect the entire business, the entire company. And I wasn't going to allow that to happen. So you know, the other thing too is like a, I suppose like a man, I've taken a couple of kicks in the teeth that I probably didn't want. I certainly don't think I deserved. And I've had a, a rough couple of years. In the last six or seven years, I've rebuilt four or five shows, brand new shows from the get-go. And that is so exhausting each year, as you can imagine. You'd know that. I should you just, each year, build a new show, new staff, new lineup, bang, start again, bang, start again. Radio starts to get into a really good rhythm after about three years, in my experiences. Two to three years, bang, switches on. It just goes into a next next level. Um, and, you know, I haven't been able to, I haven't had a three-year run for nine years. So it's about just staying in it and, and, you know, going back to, you know, relate back to what I was saying earlier about my father and my father's death, which obviously has, you know, impacted me enormously. When my dad died in 2007, I... Uh, for the first time in my life, I took stock of who I am. You've been through the same process, yeah? Had to. Had to. You know, whether, whether it be a motivation through um, reflection of your father or, or alcoholism or, or drug dependency or whatever it is, you'll have a reflection. And I, I did. And I looked at myself and I went, who do I, who am I and who do I want to be? Who is actually Merrick? And I think I'd become... Uh, through the, the nature of this industry, I'd become the person that I never wanted to be. I'd become the person that I was warned against. I'd become a person that treated people poorly unnecessarily and was saying no for the sake of saying no rather than saying yes to, to help somebody else in the team. It doesn't mean about being a yes man, but I'd become a person that I, I, I wasn't when I started the industry. And um, on reflection, I went, I want to go back to that. It's very important for me to go back to being Merrick. And that was the start of the individual process was who am I? I'm not a duo. I'm a person and, and this is who I am. And so I had an attitudinal change then. In 2008, I worked with Working Dog on a television program called The Hollow Men, where it was my first acting role. 
And I was very nervous. I loved working with the guys. I had no idea. Uh, I didn't think I was, even in the audition, I didn't think I was even close to getting a, a part. And then um, it all kind of came together. But working with those guys and Working Dog, of course, got an incredible reputation here in Australia. Yeah, they've never stopped working. Never. 40 years. Because they're brilliant. They're brilliant. But they Invented FM radio breakfast. They're incredible. Yeah. They're incredible. Most successful, you know, uh, great movies, great um, television shows. Yeah. Um, Unstoppable Australian comedy production. Just yeah. Great people. But the the influence particularly, you know, they had from the producers of, of that show um, on my personality, on my career was just profound. I worked with people who had a no bullshit attitude, treated everybody respectfully, but had really high demands, you know, really high expectations on quality of, of performance and, uh, attitude towards work. So I had the work ethic and I certainly was never poorly behaved on the set or anything like that. And one of the most incredibly rewarding things that's ever happened in, in my career was when Rob Sitch, who was directing it, said to me at the end of the series, he said, it's been an absolute delight working with you. He said, um, you set a really nice tone in, in studio. I said, because you just, you are prepared to work harder than you know, most people would work to be here because I was doing radio at the same time. I was doing breakfast radio, then filming all day. So I was doing, you know, 16 hour days pretty regularly. And he said, and he said, you're known here as the man who never complains. And I went, Jesus Christ, if you saw me on radio, <laughs> I just went, why is there two, these two Merricks? And I went, that's the Merrick I want to be from now on. Right. That's, that's the guy I want to be. I want to be the guy that people look to and go, wow, he's a good example of our industry. Not He's a, yet another example of the, uh, I wouldn't say evil, it's a bit strong, but the, um, the failings of the industry. And that was it. And that, that changed me. So, you know, going back to it, it's, you know, so much of it is pinned around my father, my father's illness and my father's death, you know, uh, has changed me. And that's, you know, I suppose in completion, it's the one great thing I've taken from my father's life is the person that I've decided to become and who the person that I am today. You mentioned at the start of this that your father was worried about the racism he saw in Australia, about yeah. the direction the country was going. You have contact with most of Australia, yeah. a lot of Australia every day. Yeah. How are we? Oh, look, I think that racism is, you know, I think by definition is about um, having a dislike or an anger towards another race, right? And that's, we all know that's abhorrent. I'd see less of that in some ways, but it's magnified in smaller examples. So when you do see examples of it, it's not as um, tacit. It's really kind of pronounced, you know, violent acts, racist acts towards other people. I think xenophobia is kind of, in my opinion, I think it's become a little bit more um, prevalent in the sense of xenophobia, but I think, I think by its definition, I know somebody's going to say and you're wrong, but xenophobia is about fear as mm. opposed to hatred. Absolutely. So uh, xenophobia, I think people in particularly in Sydney uh, and the major cities are more fearful of other, other people's races and other people's religions. Whereas I think that, you know, people used to just dislike and there's more racism. I think it's, there's a lot more people who, who would not be racist. They're not racist, but they don't hate another race, but they are fearful of another race. Mm. And I think that's, that's come with, you know, uh, terrorist attacks, horrible acts of, you know, people, um, 
uh, enacting what they believe is their uh, religious right or their uh, racial um, uh, will, you know, to, uh, I'm specifically, I'm talking about the Link Cafe, mm. right? So yeah, one individual from one nationality who enacts something on behalf of the Islamic State, that's, that is, uh, I don't think people necessarily hate. There's a lot of people now who I don't think hate, but they fear. Yeah. And fear is not great. I mean, it's, it's, but you know, things like that do, they, they frighten me as well. I'm not specifically frightened of, um, Muslims, but I'm frightened of the disharmony of race in Australia. That's what frightens me. I, I, I was so moved, um, at Malcolm Fraser's uh, funeral the other day with the Vietnamese community holding up those signs. They're great. I love Vietnamese people. I love, I can't, I know that's just, but you know, that, but that was in Australia that was when I was growing up. Mm. When I first, I came to this country, I'm not from here, mm. but I'm white. So it's okay. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's funny though, isn't it? <laughs> um, yeah. But you know, here's the, here's Malcolm Fraser, right-wing party or yep. centrist at the time with a swipe of a pen saying, it's okay, you can come here. Yep. Hundred and something thousand people. Yep. We'll, we'll look after you. We'll take you in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Oh, that, and that's what makes me really proud as an Australian. I get goosebumps just, just thinking about yeah. that, that he did that. We did the same thing with the Gurkhas, the, you know, the Nepalese soldiers that serve uh, with Australians in the Second World War. Uh, Bruce Ruxton petitioned the government because the, they were, uh, with a handover of Hong Kong, they were based in Hong Kong. They're Nepalese, but they didn't live in Nepal and they were about to become homeless. And Bruce Ruxton petitioned very, very hard in the 90s to have them all repatriated to Australia and said, these people have served with Australian soldiers. They love Australians. They offer nothing but um, positive uh, elements to this, to this nation and we should embrace them because they are really, truly, deeply our allies. And uh, we did. We repatriated them all. It was one of the greatest things we ever did. And, you know, opening our, our borders, I think, you know, obviously you've got to have scrutiny, um, but... One of the things that makes me proud as an Australian is that we do have so many um, different nationalities. But what I love, I really, truly love this. I love seeing people from other countries becoming Aussies. And that's not about becoming white. That's not about becoming, you know, oh, I don't know, uh, an archaic vision of what we were. It's about just loving footy, loving Australia as a country, waving flags, being a part of it. It's just, It just inspires me. And I, it's funny, it's, it's, I was talking to somebody the other day about, I find more and more when I do stand-up, I find a lot of Vietnamese people in the audience because Vietnam, Vietnamese people have an incredible sense of humor. But the average Australian, you know, the average non-Vietnamese Australian, and that goes for, across all races, probably doesn't realize what a great sense of humor Vietnamese people have. And I, I, I just, I, they come to gigs They'll talk to me and I often, I often try to guess, I'll say, are you Vietnamese? And they go, yeah, how'd you know? They go, because Vietnamese people love comedy. And they go, oh, now, it's, it's, you know, the second generation Vietnamese. But to me, that is just the best. That's a huge reward to see people who have come from a place of, you know, uh, chaos and war, one generation on, have just become great Australians. Just great, just great part of it. And they have delicious food and I'm going on a holiday there in a few months because I love it. But it's that to me, that's a great reward. And if you look at uh, the other thing too, is a, I think it's underestimated too, is, you know, um, 
there's a huge proportion of comedians and uh, comedy followers who are Islamic. You know, it's 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 funny, and I don't know. Actually, you might have an opinion on this, but you know, I, I've often thought that persecution or pressure of social circumstances forces um, comedy out. Why know? do you think there's so many Jewish comedians? Bingo. That's what I'm saying. If you can't laugh, you'll cry. That's right. That's it. That's exactly right. Yeah. So you've got, you know, uh, the, the the Jews certainly were, you know, the first, the, the, the godfathers of what we understand now as modern comedy um, and the persecution that, that existed with that. Then you look now, you know, it's is Islamic. Uh, nationals uh, from, you know, the Middle East, Lebanese, very funny. Um, and Vietnamese, you know, we've got Vietnamese comedians here, but there's also too, that just that sense of humour is like a release because that's what comedy is. Comedy is a social release, mm. you know, and one of the funny things about, you know, my um, interest in comedy, but also my interest in war history is how important humour is in war. It's massive because it breaks tension. It, it has a release. And, you know, they have gallows humour and, you know, dark humour from, you know, the trenches of the First World War all the way to special forces operating in Afghanistan now. Humour and comedy is just vital. Vital to mental stability. What, we'll, we'll get out on this because I'm interested. You've, you've covered a lot of stuff here today, which I'm really- I haven't been very funny. No, this is the thing. So I say to people, funny. don't interview me. I don't, I don't do- No. It's not a great indication of the sort I, of comedy this I show, I this, bet Husey was funny, wasn't he? I knew he was funny. What? No, actually we talked, we spent like 20 minutes talking about I drinking. I have it yet. We spent 20 minutes talking about drinking. Yeah. And, well, and not yeah. drinking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your kids, what kind of Australia do you hope for your kids to become adults into? 10, 15 years out. Obviously a tolerant nation. Very important for my children to be in Australia. There's an understanding of the world. Australia is an isolated country. We're a big island. We've always been isolated like that and we've done a great, a incredible feat of um civilizing this country, when I say civilizing, you know, populating it and managing a country um, that has got such harsh terrain, you know, it's a difficult country to live in. We know that. Um, but I think, you know, that kind of isolationist attitude is probably we've got to let go of that. You know, it's the, the modern era is we don't have to be all boarded up and protective and, you know, scared anymore. Um, and that's, you know, that's xenophobia amongst other things, but also to just, you know, um, the exchange with the rest of the world. And that includes England, you know, it's with everyone, our free flowing exchange with people. We've always, I, I don't know, I feel like we've, as a country, we haven't been like, you know, you look at Europe, there's a real fluidity between borders and, and ideas and concepts and stuff. And Australia, I, I think, you know, we, we are certainly changing that way, but you know, for my kids, my kids go to a school where I I actually don't know if I have any white friends. My my son's friends are all like him, uh, mixed nationality. You know, um, he's one of his best friends is half Chinese, half Vietnamese. Um, he's got another friend who's half Sri Lankan, half French, uh, Russian, um, Balinese. It's like it's it's like a little United Nations, and I like that because I think that that will put him in a position 
to relate to the rest of the world on a global understanding, a global stage. Because we'll stop thinking so much about just about nation and country and more about region. And we're seeing it now, you know, with region and then global understanding. So, and that's why very specifically my wife and I chose to send him to that school, not to, you know, a school where everybody um, has, there's not a social hierarchy there. It's not, it's not like a, a private school where people are judged on how much money they have. It's not about that. It's a, it's a school that um, educates in languages and, and global understanding. So I'm hoping in 15 years, my children will live in a country where whether you were born here or not, you speak multiple languages and you have a respect and an understanding for other people's culture. And you can, as a result, you can transition between other parts of the world and other parts of other cultures. So you, if you travel to another country, you're prepared with their language and their cultural understandings and the nuances and you learn and you can embrace it because then, you know, like somewhere like Japan, I like to go to Japan, but I go there and I can't absorb anywhere as much as if I spoke Japanese, even if I just learned it here. But if I went to Japan, I would absorb a hell of a lot more. And that's what I want to try to equip my kids with, the ability to be a part of Australia that is outwardly thinking towards the the, um, global attitude as opposed to just thinking about Australia. Well, as as someone who talks to a lot of Australia every day, you have an ability to do something about that. I don't do that. I just do dick jokes. I think we've ah, done come on. You'll the, the intentions oh. in there. Break into the machine and smash it from the inside, man. That's it. That's it. No, I'm not trying to form change on radio. I'm just trying to make people laugh. But you know, I think I think even if it's only very very subtle, people know they get a gauge on who you are and what you stand for. And the very fact sometimes it's not what you do; it's what you don't do that's important. You know, so I don't deride other people on radio. I don't speak negatively about people. I don't, you know. I don't allow that on air. So therefore that permeates. And that's it, man. You're a king of men. Osher Ginsburg, thank you for your time. I'm going to take your photo against that wall over there. God, that was, I'm so boring. <laughs> Wait, let me set up. I've got to set everything up first. Hello. That was Merrick Watts. Follow him on Twitter. He's at M-E-R-R-I-C-K-W-A-T-T-S. Let him know you heard him here. Thank you. For being a part of the show thank you very much merrick for being on the on the show I, I certainly hope that you listening enjoyed getting to know him in a different way because he's a very smart guy very and you can hear you know like we i discussed earlier the del close thing he's super funny because he plays from the top of his intelligence he plays from the absolute top of his intelligence he reminds me of my mate luke heggie who you know, plays the. I'm a, he works as a labourer. Luke Lewick works as a labourer. He's got two masters degrees. He's travelled around the world. He's driven across America 23 times. Like he speaks with such gravity and knowledge and depth and breadth of understanding of the world, but he speaks with this kind of Aussie kind of ah, a bit lazy kind of way. So you kind of underestimate it. It's just amazing when when, when people do that. And it, it, yeah, there's nothing funnier than smart. Got to say that there really isn't. So. You can listen to Merrick on the Triple M Network in, in Australia. I'm sure you can also find him online and listen to his podcast, which is available on the iTunes store, much like this one. So, hey, thanks so much for being a part of this. Thanks for listening. Thank you to everybody that came and said hello this week. I was on a shopping mission out in Costco uh, this week, out in Kazula, which is in the in the breeding grounds out in the west of Sydney. And, uh, I met a lot of lovely people while I was 
buying bucket-sized jars of margarine and things like that. It's really nice. It was really nice to say hello to everybody. So anyway, hey, I've got to go, but uh, happy birthday, Dad. Thank you all for listening. If you see my dad, tell him happy birthday this week. Um, And until then, be kind to each other, sleep well, and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gaze wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com